Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor at the IC. Joining me in the studio is our news editor, Emma Powell. How are you doing, Emma? Good, thank you. Reasonably busy week on the corporate front. Yeah, it has been quite a lot of news going on. Even though there hasn't been that many results. We also have our new specialist writer, Julia Forshaw. How are you doing, Julia? Good, thanks. You've written the cover feature this week, your first cover feature about Bitcoin and blockchain. Mm Going to give us the lowdown. I will. (laughs) Good stuff. Okay, in terms of what we're going to talk about today, first subject, Amazon and Whole Foods has been eliciting a lot of comment uh, among our readers and just more widely in the financial community. Secondly, Provident Financial, whose shares uh, fell a fifth um, on Wednesday after a profit warning they put out the the previous afternoon regarding their home credit business. We're going to talk about that too. We're going to mention Barclays and SFO, another big corporate story, and then we're going to get on to talk about uh, Bitcoin. But Emma, let's start with Amazon and Whole Foods. So we did a little Twitter poll to see what people thought uh, would be the most interesting topic out of a four that we suggested, and this came out quite a long way ahead in that poll why is this so interesting let's start with the details what are amazon buying and why so they're buying the uh, 460 stores of whole foods which is a u.s upmarket grocer yeah u.s focused although there are stores yeah although, uh, although there are stores of course in the uk um and obviously for them in amazon's known as the great disruptor anyway um but this is their kind of uh, first, I would say, meaningful expansion into um, into the kind of grocery kind of retail sector. Um, obviously, they've had partnerships with Morrisons and things like that before, but they're getting that physical real estate now. Yeah, the physical part is really important, right? Because they've had Amazon Fresh in the US, uh, which they are currently trialling in the UK. There's had more penetration in the US. Um, but this obviously gives them much more of a physical footprint, which is something they're doing in a couple of areas of their business. And some people would say that's meeting the needs of the modern sh- shopper is that we want click and collect uh, and we want convenience. That top-up shop becoming the weekly shop uh, was something I saw from a convenience store chain CEO recently. So th- there's this consumer that wants to have both digital um, buying but also be able to pick up stuff at their own convenience from a physical location near to them. So that's kind of what it gives Amazon in, in its home market. How did the US grocers respond to this? So unsurprisingly, um, shares in Walmart, Costco and also Target, which is more of a discount chain, they dipped, I think, by as much as 5% on the day of this announcement, which was last Friday, which is unsurprising, I guess, given that admittedly, obviously, I think Whole Foods has got about 1.2% market share in the US of the kind of grocery market. But if you think, you know, this this could be the start of something, maybe that the start of them making more acquisitions in that area or expanding that kind of retail chain, you can see how people might perceive it as a threat. And people are worried that Amazon's going to do a similar thing to grocery retail than it did um, from its origins to publishing. Um, so booksellers, by providing huge amount of variety, managing to undercut um, in terms of prices, it can have a very disruptive effect on the industry. So that's partly why these groups are worried that it has a kind of a growing footprint. And yeah, it is in some ways getting the Whole Foods brand as well and everything that that brings. In terms of the UK shares, how did they respond? They dipped just very slightly, but they've since recovered. You can see that... Um, 
there is possibly some some threat to the kind of um, UK grocery stores, not as much as obviously in the US. But if you think about the kind of logistics infrastructure that Amazon has and, um, you know, like what they did with the booksellers where they had so much cash behind them, they could, you know, almost take a loss for quite a while, squeeze out those other kind of book outlets and you know i mean where does where do so many people buy books now amazon so you know maybe in itself this deal is not massive for the uk kind of retailers but if you think about it in terms of what what could be next is this the start of more than possibly you know given that we've got the example of the kind of what they've done in other markets it i guess it could be bad for the, those kind of supermarket retailers that are already under pressure. Yeah, I, I'm quite, in terms of this threat, um, I'm quite bearish on it for the traditional grocery retailers. I think that you can in part see deals like Sainsbury's takeover of home retail to create a multi-channel retailer as a response to the rise of groups like Amazon and the threat that they pose to the traditional bricks and mortars sellers of you know food and other goods. Try, so in Sainsbury's case trying to expand the product category, get a good UK footprint get their distribution across the country very secure and build those customer relationships in order to see off a threat from uh, Amazon potentially. Um, And then Tesco, we had buying Booker, buying convenience chain, buying into the wholesale market to kind of firm up its presence in fresh food. And fresh food was a very good part of their first quarter results. They had very good volumes there. So I think Tesco is going another way with it. And then we had news this week, didn't we, potentially around Sainsbury's and Nisa, another convenience chain. So for me, that shows that in some ways, there's a bit of a land grab going on in UK uh, grocery, where these major players are trying to say, okay, well, if what Amazon and Whole Foods shows us is that the rushes for physical locations, um, to be able to serve the consumer online effectively, in terms of at home but also in terms of convenience then you kind of see this land grab among the major grocers to make sure well they've got those local locations they've got the distribution set up and in Sainsbury's case actually have the wider product categories whether that will work or not I think is very interesting to your point Amazon doesn't always have to succeed. I make this point in my column. It doesn't have to succeed in the traditional sense of profitability to really disrupt the sector that it goes into it is shown in its corporate history um, that it is able to undercut and to push out other businesses uh, not not in any untoward way uh, by taking a very long-term view on its own owners taking a very long-term view on its profitability so let's wait and see uh, um, it's also very diverse if you think yeah. about it in, in terms of its market so even if it doesn't do so well in one market and if it can make it up in others i mean it's just a behemoth isn't it really yeah and i would just point anyone towards uh, the feature that we wrote at the end of last year on amazon the disruption that it poses to sectors including grocery but also logistics obviously and the point that um, we make in that piece is that the profits big part of that comes from uh, nothing to do with this but from the amazon web services business where they're providing kind of an online infrastructure so like you say it's a very diverse business and i think that's why people are quite concerned about um whichever way it steps okay well away from amazon whole foods tell us what's been going on at provident financial 
Yeah, so Provident Financial um, was a big share price drop earlier this week. They came out with a profit warning, basically saying, I mean, we already knew that um, the home credit division was going to have a bit of disruption. Um, you know, they're kind of switching from the agent model to having these kind of customer service representatives. Um, and this is its traditional doorstep lending, is how yeah. some people term it, business where it has agents in the local community that go door to door collecting the money uh, that is owed to Provident. Yeah, exactly. It, it was actually very much where they started out. Obviously, they've gone on to kind of more diverse fields now. But basically, uh, this warning was saying that at first, they thought the first half profits would incur a £50 million shortfall as a result of this disruption. But now that's been revised up to £40 million. Um, and there were some analyst downgrades as a result of that. And they also expect the cash profits, underlying cash profits for the consumer credit division, which obviously includes Satsuma and some other parts um, of the business because because of this disruption, they now expect it to be um, less than what they made last year. So the majority of 60% of Providence profits come from the Vanquist, come from elsewhere, the Vanquist subprime credit card, um, which has really been the engine of their growth. Um, but Nevertheless, the shares did dip quite heavily on this, even though they had uh, previously said there would be disruption with this business chain, uh, business change. And we did a boardroom talk with the chief executive, Peter Crook, uh, which you can listen to in your feed, where he discussed that transformation and we discussed the risk of disruption. So it was very much in shareholders' minds. Why do you think the share price fell so much? Do you think it was the chunk of profits, just simply that, um, that, that they were losing as a result of this disruption? which were obviously more than expected? Or do you think it was also that some people are getting a little bit concerned about where we are in the credit cycle? It's hard to say, but what's your kind of take on the stock? Do you think there's any change to the underlying or do you think, uh, and is this just uh, short-term disruption? I think it ended the day, it was down about 16%. It's the, the following day, now it's up around 5%, I think, so it's remade some ground. But I think why it was such a big share price drop was a few reasons. So firstly, how kind of well-known they are for home credit. I don't think you can take away from that. I think the chunk of profits um, was quite notable. I think the fact that this disruption was meant to be just kind of April and then it was meant to smooth out and it carried on through May. Um, there were other issues like, like the uh, agent vacancy rates was double what they expected. And I do know, having spoken to management at Morse's Club and non-standard finance, that they are very much um, kind of always on the lookout for new agents and things like that. You don't know if that played a factor. I think they clearly did. I mean, I think that what's interesting about it is that what they're trying to do is transition this business from being those self-employed agents to these directly employed managers, whereas their rivals that are still working on that traditional model are managing to scoop up some of their agents. And they said that it, this loss of agents, a higher vacancy rate, as you say, impacted on their ability to kind of sell more, impacted on their debt collections, impacted on their customer retention. So we know that when agents go, they take people with them, right? So there are reasons to be concerned about this, although it's only kind of one part of the picture. And this is very much a business that they are uh, not focusing on in terms of future growth. And there was actually a, a humorous tweet on this from Romboid1 on Twitter. Shout out to him. He said that a provident financial trading statement all fine, except we appear to have shot ourselves in both feet. Do you agree with that? Not necessarily. One foot. W- one foot. I mean, the actually, tobe. worth worth noting is though, obviously, credit quality held up at Vanquist Bank. Um, well, actually, across the board, but at Vanquist, and that 
like you said, does account for 60% um, of the bottom line. And that has been a, a big engine for growth for them. The only thing, obviously, though, about that is given the regulators kind of increased focus on credit cards there is I guess a slight amount of risk there and if you take into account where we kind of are at the credits in the credit cycle although actually on that note I remember speaking to Chris Dillow about this actually about kind of sub- the IC sub- economist yeah about subprime lending and the fact that even if the even if the kind of credit cycle turns, the fact that Provident Financial and other subprime lenders are towards that bottom end, all that needs to actually happen is for employment to hold up, really. Because even if you ha- they have some kind of customers who are on some kind of benefits and things like that, well, that's not going to be stopped. And also, if, as long as employment holds up, they have some income to keep paying back. Because crucially, they don't have mortgages. These are subprime um, customers um, that can't get mortgages and mainstream loans. So they don't get hurt in the same way under a rising interest rate environment. And it's we- living expenses. But we know that, you know, those uh, that change does impact on jobs. So there will be pain. But I think what's interesting about this, you mentioned the regulatory backdrop. I agree. I think the fact that they are trying to transform this business is also with one eye to what the regulator is looking at when it comes to doorstep lending. And I think Provident Financial looks at where's, where's the kind of future for this kind of subprime sector. It's online and it's via kind of... Um, the kind of credit card they think is obviously going to continue to be an important market and that doorstep market they are moving away from. Obviously, it's hurting them to do so, but whether that is still the right move is a different question. Uh, but okay, but they're really interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, as you say, the shares came back a bit. There's also another valuation question. People were questioning whether Vanquist can continue to grow as quickly anyway. So there have been question marks around the stock uh, for a little bit of time. Okay, let's just quickly talk about Barclays. You obviously can't ignore it. It's an absolutely huge story. The first charges to come against people running a bank as a result of the kind of capital fundraisings that happened in 2008 during the financial crisis. What are the details? Obviously, we need to stick to the details on this one. So obviously, this is the serious fraud office revealing that they will be charging Barclays along with four of its former employees. They include um, John Varley, the ex-CEO, with conspiracy to commit fraud. And that's, I guess, that's kind of introduced another known unknown into the the, the kind of throw of things. What what it actually relates to is, like you said, those 2008 um, capital raisings that were carried out with Qatari investors. So that's Qatar Holding and Challenger Universal in June and October of that year, as well as the three billion dollar loan that was then made to the state of Qatar in November that year. So that's what it's all relating to. That's what the SFO has said. Barclays has been charged with three counts, which is conspiracy to commit fraud by false representation in relation to those fundraisings and unlawful financial assistance. Let's keep the focus to Barclays because, and as you've written, a couple of the ex uh, executives that have been charged have said that they intend to um, vigorously defend um, yeah. these charges um, and there hasn't been comments. Um, we haven't been able to contact uh, the other couple. But in terms of our focus is very much on on the bank uh, itself. What do you think this means to the investment case? It didn't bother the shares too much on the day. Obviously, these are very negative headlines. Um, but do you think to an extent people are expecting this to come? We are still waiting for more detail as well from the SFO, aren't we? Yeah, well, actually, um, we are still awaiting more detail, like you said, but actually the... um 
the, the Financial Conduct Authority, actually, which is also which also came out on on the day the SFO made their announcement, saying we're we're pleased that it's now out in the public domain because obviously with the SFO investigation ongoing, we um, we had to kind of put our case on hold. But actually, back in two thousand and thirteen, they had. Um, they had issued Barclays with a £15 million fine for failing to disclose, uh, it was £332 million in advisories p- fees paid to the Qatari investors. Um, obviously, Barclays then came out and defended against that. And then obviously, the CFO investigation got underway. So that's all been very delayed. But um, I think because it stretches back that far, I don't think it was a massive surprise. I mean, it sounds quite, it is a big deal, obviously, that this is the first kind of charges leveled against people involved um, or, or run, of running a bank during the kind of financial crisis. But obviously, the bank itself has said it's considering its position. Yeah. It's also awaiting the SFO's decision about whether the bank subsidiary would be charged in respect of the loan. So there's further we're waiting for from uh, from the SFO regarding Barclays itself. Then, as you say, you've got the FCA uh, investigation and you have investigations from the US Department of Justice and from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Just on this topic, uh, aside from that, um, the US DOJ is also looking into mortgage-backed securities uh, sales between uh, like in the mid-2000s, complaint that Barclays has uh, you know, re- rejected, has said it would vigorously defend. And that's just those, let alone the whistleblowing probe. There's a fair amount of negative headlines around Barclays. There is, which part of me thinks is why perhaps the the shares didn't move this much. I mean, I was actually speaking to one analyst who says that he thinks the Department of Justice um, investigation is far more is you know could have far more kind of large implications financially. The, the mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, one. exactly. The fact you have to specify which one is well <laughs> quite telling. Yeah. But yeah, that's potentially he thinks uh, more going uh, ha- have more of an impact on the bank. Now, what does the valuation tell us about um, what investors think of the kind of pain that needs to be borne by or is going to be borne by Barclays? Well, I mean, the shares are trading at around 0.7 times for tangible or forecast net tangible assets, um, which actually makes it cheaper than RBS, Lloyd's, HSBC and Standard Chartered now. So that's quite a good measure that shows that partly some people, given that we're now in a rising interest rate environment and trading at Barclays has been improved, um, and the fact that these retainer investment banking operations has actually helped it in the uh, in recent times, the fact that there's still that discount does suggest that people think it might have to pay out future chunks uh, in regulatory fines or that, yeah, that, that its book value, that net tangible asset uh, value might be further depressed in future and thus they're putting a discount on it. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, and obviously it's difficult to assess any or if they have to make any provisions um, so far for any of this kind of on, ongoing litigation, which obviously would eat into the book value. But you're staying positive on the shares. Yeah, of course, this adds in a layer more of uncertainty. But I mean, if you look at the UK banking sector as a whole, those kind of listed banks, there is so much uncertainty. You could say the same about RBS. There is and there always has been a lot of kind of uh, litigation concern hanging over a lot of these banks. But I think given the fact that it is trading at such a discount, I think the fact that the whole simplification program is on track, um, the fact they've gotten rid of um, that big chunk more than was expected of their African operations. I think that the reform is progressing, that it's progressing well. 
in general and it's moving in the right direction. So this could be a case of buying on bad news. Well, we'll see exactly. whether that was the right call as the, as the months go on. All right, well, let's talk about the uh, main feature now. Julia, I want to bring you in. Bitcoin is probably one of those subjects that everyone feels like they understand, <laughs> whether they do or don't. And obviously the blockchain technology that underlies it. Perhaps just give us a bit of a brief explanation of what Bitcoin is and that, yeah, we'll start from there. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin is, it's a, what they call a cryptocurrency. So it's one where encryption is used to regulate the number of um, units of currency that are available. And it's also used to verify transactions with it. Bitcoin first came to the market, or was first launched um, in 2009, but uh, hovered at quite a low, low value for a while. And then um, around 2013, shot up to just under $1,200 and then sank back down again. But it's recently gone on quite a tear and passed the three, uh, $3,000 mark um, earlier this month. So just kind of brought it back into the spotlight. Uh, yeah. So main, the main times we hear about Bitcoin is when there's been a huge rise or a huge fall in the value. Which and seems everyone to be, starts to think bubble. Yeah, everyone starts to think bubble or bubble being popped. But for this kind of peer-to-peer currency, what, is it difficult to get a sense of any kind of valuation in it? Is it, is it purely, you know, the speculative forces? It's kind of hard to say, I suppose. It's, uh, I feel like a lot of investors who buy into Bitcoin think of it as a speculative asset, just thinking, betting that it's going to get more expensive over time. But a lot of companies are now, especially online retailers, are starting to offer it as a method of payment, which is adding more value to it. And there's also a very clear limit on how many Bitcoins can ever be created. There can only ever be 21 million in existence. And at the moment, they're around the 16 million mark. And so as it as it starts to near 21 million, you could potentially see another spike in the price. Do you see this, um, and you mentioned some of the retailers that are taking on Bitcoin as an accepted currency. Do you think uh, this kind of gaining an acceptance is speeding up? Do you think um, there's been, has there been some quite important deals there? Or do you think we're still, still quite early days in terms of like the acceptance of this uh, currency? Yeah, I mean, across the market, I mean, it's still probably quite early days, but it seems like there are a progressive number, more and more numbers of um, online retailers, especially that are beginning to accept Bitcoin as a method of payment. And what are the advantages of it as a method of payment over you know, traditional currencies? It's quite a fast way to convert um, the, the currency. And depending on what Bitcoin exchange you're using, the fees could be different, but it's often quite a cheap, cheap transactions. And it can be done anywhere in the world as well. So rather than having, say, you want to someone here in the UK wants to buy something in the United States, then you don't have to go through those um, the ex- exchange costs and the time it would take to convert into, into the US dollar. Instead, it's just it's a globally accepted currency. But the risk is that there's not a kind of central bank propping it up in the way that traditional currencies have, right, in case in, to, to defend the value of it, the, the risk of this uh, holding this currency as a store of value is much higher than the pound or the dollar. Yeah, instead of having um, like traditional bank behind it, it's got um, what they call the blockchain. That rec- it's, a digi- it's a distributed ledger that uh, digitally records every transaction ever made with Bitcoin. And so rather than having a central bank, people can look to the blockchain to see what's going on. Now, the blockchain, I think, is actually more interesting than Bitcoin in terms of the applications. So... 
the idea of something that is very difficult to hack or amend because everyone the blockchain is the same everywhere um and everyone can kind of tell if there's been some kind of change to the chain the the, the distributed ledger as you described it that has applications in lots of different industries doesn't it whether that's kind of cross-border payments even land registries what are the kind of applications that you had a look at cross-border payments obviously are a big one they've started to look at land registries as well and how it could possibly be used. Um, someone that I spoke to from Capgemini for the feature was saying that uh, it could also be used in identity checks or in uh, loyalty programs at different companies. So once you strip out Bitcoin and the blockchain technology is left over, it's it just it acts as a way to easily keep track of what's going on and everyone who is involved in that network can see what others in the network are also doing. And the reason it's called a blockchain is because when there's a group of new transactions or new information, um, then that's a block that's, that's added on. That's so, right. And then that means you could, in theory, you could look at the chain and see all the information within it. So it's very hard to tamper with the um, transactions that have already been made. That's right. Yeah. If you were to have to go back and make a change to anything, it would have you wouldn't be able to go back and change that original block you'd have to create an entirely new transaction in a new block that would then be added onto the chain. And then that would have to be recognised by... Um, all the different units in the blockchain. The, yeah. And, and so I think potentially financial services, that's where there's. it seems like there's been the most progress. Yeah, it uh, seems like this. certainly the most activity anyways. Yeah, but the, the banks are interested in using it, um, whether they're just talking uh, shop around... Whether they're just talking a good game around innovation um, is another matter, but there is definitely applications in terms of reducing the costs of cross-border um, transactions. Yeah, reducing settlement times as well. Yes. And uh, it's also been looked at as a way to trade um, mutual funds. One of the this Recently, this technology company called Calstone announced that it successfully completed the first phase of its testing for um, trading mutual funds. Yeah, that's really interesting as well. You know, what, do you think that that could be have a much wider effect between the, within the fund market? Where obviously uh, fees is an ongoing um, point of pressure from clients. Do you think this is a, another way of reducing the administration charges for fund management? Mm-hmm. That's certainly something that you hear a lot about analysts in the in that market. That it this uh, pressure from passives on active fund management that uh, by implementing something like a blockchain would be able to reduce fees quite a lot because you wouldn't have as many transaction fees, you wouldn't have as much staff to pay, you wouldn't have those long settlement times as well. So it, uh, it could potentially definitely have a downward effect on fees. What are the potential uh, pitfalls of blockchain? What, what are the kind of challenges you think that it will have to get over to really establish as a technology? I think uh, when people first hear the concept of blockchain, one of the things they get the most nervous about is that um, everyone in the network can see what's going on. And if you're a bank, you may think that, maybe actually, I don't really want everyone to see what everyone else is doing in the network. So some of, uh, some of the trials that have been going on have added sort of a layer of permission into that certain members of the blockchain can see everything that's going on, whereas others maybe can't access, if you know if it's a bank, clients can't see other clients' transactions, yeah. but the bank itself can or the regulator can. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's obviously a subject that we're going to return to. Um, it's probably on the more speculative side than for a lot of our uh, readers. But it, both the 
Bitcoin itself to see how that progresses as a currency and also see how the technology is used by businesses is going to be uh, really interesting. So thank you for that. Okay, I think that's about all we have time for uh, this week. Uh, There's plenty more in the issue. We have an excellent feature from Alex Newman about Saudi Aramco, the Saudi Arabian state oil company and the question of its IPO and where that's going to be. We also have a very good sector focus on 5G from Megan Boxall talking about um, yeah, that next generation uh, mobile data network and where the UK is in the race to create it and whether we've really finished 4G uh, yet. And as I say, plenty more stuff, plenty more results. Uh, and I wrote my taking stock as discussed on Amazon Whole Foods. All that and much more for £4.90 and all good news agents. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.